This is an ABC podcast. It's not reasonable to ask people to function without daylight, sleep and proper food for weeks and months at a time, especially when it's not like you do one case and it stops and you get a couple of months of reprieve. You normally are straight back into something else. Ruby is a lawyer, and when she was working in a large private practice firm, she was clocking long hours. Especially in the litigation team, it's not unusual to start work at 7.30 or 8 in the morning and to work right through the day where you're having all meals in the office, at your desk, and not go home until 10 or 11 o'clock at night. That's a pretty standard day. And the thing is, at the time, these hours felt reasonable to her because the work just needed to be done. But since I've left private practice and now work in a different kind of organisation, I can see that it was never reasonable to expect people to function for extended periods of time, including weekends and holidays, without getting more than four hours of sleep. And looking back, Ruby can see the toll it took on her health. I was the most anxious I have ever been in my life during that time. I don't like who I was. I think that was a function of sleep deprivation, to be honest. And also, the more tired you get, the more likely it is that you're going to make a mistake. And the more mistakes you make, the longer things take, which means you get less sleep and the cycle continues. And so it's a really high-pressure environment. And it took a long time of not working in that environment to realise that that was quite dangerous. And especially for some people, I know it's had lasting effects. Ruby now works in a different area of law and is working standard full-time hours. I refer to my job now as part-time. I start at about 9am and I finish about 5.30 and I get to take a lunch break. And that genuinely feels like a part-time job. The idea of having enough time at the end of the day to go to the gym or to go grocery shopping or to see a friend for dinner is something that I hadn't experienced for a while. Ruby's story is one of many across Australia of people being overworked. And lately, there's a lot of talk about reasonable work hours, thanks to a certain high-profile legal case. Tonight, more details emerge over the legal dispute between the Teal MP for Kuyong and her chief of staff. Ms Rugg applied for an injunction to protect her job in January claiming she'd been expected to work unreasonable hours as Dr Ryan's chief of staff. Ms Rugg says she was expected to work 70 to 80 hour weeks, a claim Dr Ryan disputes. The matter will now proceed to a trial in what could be a test case for workers across the country. That trial will consider a dispute about what constitutes reasonable overtime. What does reasonable mean in Australian workplace law? Uh How long have you got, Lisa? (laughs) Hello, I'm Lisa Leong, and today on This Working Life, the Goldilocks number of work hours in a week, how many hours we should be working in our jobs, and why some of us are overworked. I've never had so many responses from former students, so superstar students of mine, both accountants and lawyers. You know, it really resonated. This story has really resonated with them. I've never had so many direct emails on a media topic. That's Dr Giuseppe Carabetta. And I'm an Associate Professor in Employment and Business Law at the UTS Business School. What are some rules of thumb here? Because if you think about flexible working, hybrid working, Mm. I mean, it's all a melange. So how could you possibly figure out where we stand with what's reasonable or unreasonable at the moment? 
Well, I mean, at the moment, the, the reason that people are getting very excited about this case is that we will get some sort of guidance. It'll bring it to prominence, the issue. But what we need is some guidelines and some guidance. The significance of the case is that it's really captured public attention. And I think it started a discussion about what are reasonable hours of work and what can I be expected to do or not do. That's Barrister Kate Eastman, AMSC. My work as a barrister is essentially in the human rights, employment and discrimination area. She says the Rug Ryan case has opened up an interesting conversation in Australia about what we expect from our employers. But it's also an important discussion for employers and it means employers have also had to give attention to this case to say, all right, what do I actually expect of my workers and am I routinely expecting them to work more than 38 hours a week? And have I turned my mind as an employer to whether or not it's reasonable? There's a list of factors in the Fair Work Act that help us decide whether or not overtime is reasonable. The first point to note is that they're non-exhaustive. So the last one is open and says whatever's relevant. So that'll come down to the judge. Um, But things like risk to health and safety. And the questions asked, if they are to work additional hours, would there be a risk to their health and safety? Sometimes it can also take into account a person's personal circumstances. Personal circumstances is a really important one of the employees. So that would include family responsibilities. Be they smaller children, school-aged children or older family members. And their personal circumstances with respect to their family responsibilities might mean that it would be unreasonable to require such a person to work extra hours. So the operational side of things for the workplace, so these provisions are sort of trying to balance the needs of each party. In the white collar area, if I can use that sort of expression, so professional working environments and office environments, if, say, the employer is working to particular project deadlines and it requires people to do some additional work to meet those deadlines, but it might be a one-off or fairly exceptional circumstance then, In those contexts, it might be reasonable requiring somebody to work. The nature of the job, whether you are paid any sort of remuneration to anticipate any overtime hours, whether that be, you know, a penalty or bonus. And another factor that's taken into account is the level of seniority and the level of responsibility that a particular employee might have. So I think there's an expectation that the more senior you are in an organisation or the higher the level of responsibility, particularly in supervising other people or ensuring that the work is performed in a particular way, that reasonableness would take into account that level of responsibility. So what's deemed reasonable is really done on a case-by-case basis. It's not a ticker box exercise in the sense that if you satisfy 10 factors, then that makes it reasonable. But if it's less than that or more than that, it would be unreasonable. So lawyers always sort of say when we're talking about reasonableness, it's a really mixed inquiry and that there's no absolute right or wrong or certainty that would apply in all cases. Let's go to what is seen as the uh, normal working hours. So what's the magical number? The magical number at the moment in Australia is 38. For Australia, the magical number of 38 hours a week comes from a decision of the body that's like the Fair Work Commission is now, but its predecessor, and it made a decision in 1983 that there should be a 38-hour week. But some of the history to these numbers and working out how many hours employees work 
really go back to the 19th century and looking at circumstances where particularly workers in an industry like the stonemasons or the coal miners. And in 1855, we had two Sydney, in Sydney, two construction sites. They established the eight-hour day. That was the first, right? And then in 1856, at Melbourne Uni, we had stonemasons actually march off to Parliament House and say, well, we can't do this any longer. It's too hot. We're working extraordinary hours. Really said that their health and safety was being jeopardised by requiring to work long hours. And so they made industrial demands and threatened to go on strike if their employers did not agree to an industry-wide standard of 38 hours a week, or in some cases, 40 hours a week. Now we've got that 38-hour idea, that magical number, reflected in the Act. And we see those hours translate into the law but also translate into awards and enterprise agreements, which are all approved by the Fair Work Commission. Workplace culture in Australia puts a lot of pressure on workers to do unpaid overtime. That's Eliza Littleton. I'm a senior economist at the Australia Institute's Centre for Future Work. So according to the OECD, 13% of employees in Australia work very long hours, which is above the OECD average of 10%. We rank 32nd out of 41 countries. So that's pretty bad. We're doing a lot of uh, very long or excessive hours compared to a lot of other very comparable countries like Canada, the US, the UK. Eliza's been researching this, and late last year she wrote a report on the amount of overtime worked by Australians. On average, workers put in four hours and 20 minutes of unpaid overtime per week. It is a very frequent and it's a prevalent issue in Australia. And across the whole year for an individual worker, this works out to be six weeks of unpaid overtime. And this unpaid overtime, she says, is costing us. This unpaid overtime amounts to $92 billion in unpaid wages. For an individual worker... Over the year, this results in $8,000. This is a lot of money for workers not to have in their pockets. So why are we so overworked? Workers are doing unpaid overtime for a couple of different reasons. And three of the top four reasons for overtime reflect external workplace issues and the culture in workplaces rather than, for example, just a choice that a worker is making because they love their job and they want to do unpaid overtime. So, for example, the top three issues were workload issues, which I think is something we can all relate to, having too much work and having to stay back to finish it, things like staff shortages. And particularly during COVID, we saw a lot of this with lots of co-workers off sick and people having to pick up the slack. And then things like the expectations of managers. So, again, if there's a workplace culture where lots of people are doing unpaid overtime, it's really hard to push back against that. And it's not just full-time employees who are working overtime. Full-time workers are the most likely to be doing the most overtime of 4.9 hours per week, followed by part-time workers and casual workers. Really what it tells us, though, is that unpaid overtime happens for all types of workers in all industries and occupations. It's an issue for everyone. And, of course, what this actually reflects and the fact that full-time workers are doing the most unpaid overtime is really this maldistribution in the number of working hours that people are doing across the whole workforce. We found that 
There are a lot of workers saying they're doing too much work. And there are a lot of workers who are saying they don't have enough work. So this polarization in in the way that work is distributed in our workforce is not good for anyone. And we just have to look at our underemployment rates and how high they are to know that if we could distribute work hours more evenly across workers in the economy, then we could actually uh, give people more of what they want out of their working lives. Hi, my name is Lewis. I am an arts worker. I work for a number of different arts organisations, mostly in New South Wales, but across Australia, usually performing arts and in the festival sector. Yes, so I would say across all of the jobs that I'm currently working that I am overworked. Relatively speaking, I don't think I necessarily am working more than any of the rest of my colleagues. I feel as though there is a bit of an industry issue in terms of the way labour is organised in the arts that means that everybody works quite significant amounts of time in order to facilitate the kind of work that we're producing. The reason for a role being four days a week or three days a week might have more to do with the company's available budget than it has to do with the specificities of that role. So often there actually is enough work to fill a full-time role or potentially even a full-time and a half, but the companies just don't necessarily have the resources to be able to make that possible. And so there is like a, a bit of a problem in that sense in terms of the amount of work that can reasonably be expected to be conducted in you know a certain number of hours. I wonder whether maybe because there is another quarter of society that sort of sees the arts as being a bit frivolous and being a bit silly and dispensable, that we tend not to actually complain about, you know, working conditions. But it is interesting, I think, there is some degree of movement in the industry now acknowledging that it's actually not always particularly viable or particularly healthy to work at the rate that we as an industry often are working. Responding to those sorts of industry pressures is really difficult. It feels sometimes like trying to solve a nine-piece jigsaw puzzle with 12 pieces in the box. So what's all this overwork doing to our brains and our bodies? What happens when we feel like we're always against the clock? We wrote a review paper in 2020 documenting the myriad of different ways that these feelings of time poverty can get in the way of living a good life. That's Dr. Ashley Willens. I'm an assistant professor of business administration at the Harvard Business School. As a social psychologist, I study the psychological experience of time, a little bit less about how many hours should be allocated, but really about this subjective experience about how we feel about our time on an everyday basis. So I study the feeling of time poverty, which is a psychological feeling of having too many things to do in a day and not enough time to do them. If that resonates with you, that's because 80% of working adults report feeling time poor. From a health perspective, many people say that the number one reason they can't exercise or eat as healthy as they would like to is that they don't have enough hours in the day to prep healthy meals or to get on the treadmill. So time poverty can have really negative consequences for our physical health, our mental health when we're feeling completely overwhelmed. These constant feelings of being behind can predict over time these more chronic feelings of burnout, which is a more sustained feeling of not being able to manage or cope with demands. So I think time poverty can have pervasive problems. At least that's what my collaborators and I have argued for the way people feel about themselves, their physical fitness, and their social relationships. 
This sounds like what Ruby, the lawyer, experienced. I was speaking with a colleague recently about the experiences we had of only being able to leave the office to shower, change and come straight back. And the hardest part that we both agreed on was the relationships we lost with people because of all the late night cancels on special occasions or catch-ups with friends. And eventually you just stop being invited because you don't feel like you can tell your boss that you need to leave, but your loved ones find it very hard to understand that you don't feel like you can do that. Some of the relationships that were a bit strained during that time have come back with more investment on my side, definitely. But there is a friend that I'd had for a very long time. We still don't speak. Ashley Willens says because hybrid work has boomed, it's impacted not just where we're working, but how we're working. We're doing this call via Zoom, and that is increasingly common and popular today. And that's been increasing the work span, increasing emails and increasing meetings. So by Microsoft's estimates, meetings and emails have gone up 250% since before the pandemic. And this creates all this digital distraction and time fragmentation, which makes us feel pulled in a million directions and out of control of our time. What is underpinning this at a deeper level, maybe in terms of the cognitive biases that are pushing us into time poverty? One of the reasons we feel like we always need to be constantly responsive are these ideal worker norms that exist in society. So what these ideal worker norms are, are the idea that in the absence of having clear promotion criteria for many jobs, we use constant responsivity as a proxy for commitment. So We feel like we have to respond to our overflowing inbox immediately. Otherwise, we're going to be seen as a bad colleague, as someone who isn't committed to their work. Now that we're more distributed and we don't see each other in person, it's no wonder that we're always showing up for meetings we don't need to be in or responding as quickly as we can to our colleagues' email. We have no other way to signal our commitment to our organizations. And this is where leaders can play a really important role by clearly indicating what emails are urgent or not and where policies and organizations around having very clear norms for communication can be really important. Because in the absence of clear communication, an employee is going to assume that if you send an email, you require an urgent response. So some of this is coming from these ideal worker norms. This is not just something that's happened during the COVID-19 pandemic. Researchers have been writing about the ideal worker for decades, about this idea that modern society rewards, recognizes constant responsivity and a devotion to work above all else as a way to get ahead in society. And it's being exacerbated by the COVID-19 pandemic and the changes to work that have happened since. But this has been a long-standing problem. And I think many of these reduced work week initiatives are meant to push against this ideal worker norm to break this idea that the best employees are those that work the longest hours and who are the most connected. Because research does substantiate from a correlational perspective the idea that the most productive employees are also those who are the most likely to take their paid vacations, that some of the most creative employees are those that are the most likely to take breaks and sabbaticals, paid time away from the office. And so a lot of these conversations around reduced work week schedules, around the four-day work week, are meant to try to 
push against this cultural imperative of constant responsivity and long hours and being always in the office as a way to signal your commitment, devotion, and ultimately the value that you create for your organizations. If we do work overtime, it should be paid for. And just what kind of payment this is can impact your happiness. So we've analyzed some Glassdoor data looking at what kinds of workplaces offer time-based rewards like paid time off. And so we see that companies who primarily offer financial compensation have to pay employees in the U.S. about $30,000 more to get to the same levels of job satisfaction as organizations who offer more time-based rewards and flexibility. So from an organization perspective, there's an ROI or a return on investment to offering flexibility and time-based rewards. Time flexibility is great from a retention perspective and attrition and regrettable loss costs companies a lot of money. But time poverty also has pervasive societal costs. It keeps people out of the workforce. It disempowers workers because they don't have the time resources to look for new and better jobs. So we can think about time as something that's not a nice to have, but a have to have for everyone. And although we all have 24 hours in a day, our time is not equal if some of us have to commute further or work multiple jobs or we can't afford childcare to the same extent. And so time also becomes a social and policy related issue that if we focused more on time, we could raise the well-being of everyone in society by removing burdens and allowing everyone to thrive. Okay, so what are some solutions to this issue of working overtime? So one of the uh, recommendations that came out of our report last year was this idea of a right to disconnect. That's Eliza Littleton again. Basically, that refers to guaranteeing that workers can unplug and disconnect from their work after their scheduled hours. So not responding to emails, not making calls out of hours, not doing that teleconference late at night on the kitchen table and any other work-related tasks that you might do after hours. So this right to disconnect is really about and really addresses the fact that communication technology has made workers contactable at all hours of the day and it spills over into our personal lives and has lots of consequences for us in terms of burnout, physical and mental exhaustion, and really just not getting the proper balance in life. And it turns out most of us want this in place. So our research shows that Australian workers would overwhelmingly support government legislating a right to disconnect in our national employment standards. We found that 84% of Australian workers would support a right to disconnect and only 8% who would oppose. And the Senate Select Committee on Work and Care also recommended a right to disconnect in their final report that they released recently as well. I think the right to disconnect is a really interesting innovation. From an employer's perspective, I think that's going to be very challenging. That's Kate Eastman again. Challenging because we are so used to working with modern technologies and having access to people 24-7 through their phones and through emails. That temptation that we all have to check our emails or look at our phone or check what's happened is one that connects us very strongly into our workplaces. 
So being able to switch off, but also being able to ask our employers to recognise that we want to switch off, I think is going to be a really big challenge. But I like the idea that we're building in a right to disconnect and a right to be able to enjoy leisure time without having work constantly hanging over us. And I think the right to disconnect is really saying to workers that we respect these rights, that your whole person doesn't have to be at work or on call all the time. Thanks to my guests, to sound engineer Kerry Dell and to producer Zoe Ferguson. I'm Lisa Leong. Thanks for listening to This Working Life. This Working Life is made on the lands of the Bidjigal people of the Darug Nation and the Walradjuri people of the Kulin Nation. Next episode, we're exploring how we're co-piloting with AI in the workplace, what's good about it and what's not so good about it. Don't miss out. Until next time, work it, baby. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.